You are in um, John chapter 4, verse 23. And uh, let me read these two verses to you, and then we're going to pray. And I, as always, I have some questions for you tonight, so I hope you'll put on your thinking caps and be ready to answer some questions. John chapter 4, verse 23 says this, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Father, thank you for drawing us together tonight, for bringing folks to this evening's Bible study and prayer. Uh, In a few moments, as we set aside, not set aside, as we close your word and come to you in prayer, I'm asking that you would burden us with a spirit to pray. There are many heartaches, there's pressures, there's people who are brokenhearted for whom you've called, uh, uh, yeah, for whom you've called us to, to lift up our voices. And I ask that when we come to that time of prayer, we'd be serious, we'd be sincere, that we'd be fervent in our prayers, we'd be faithful to pray, not just Wednesday night, but also in our personal time, Thursday through Tuesday. Father, we do love you, and our worship of you is so critical to our Christian lives. And I'm asking that you would open up our minds and our hearts to truth. Uh, Holy Spirit, take the texts, the the words that you've preserved for us, translated for us, and use those words to change our thinking where we need to change our thinking, to reinforce truth where we know the truth, and to motivate us to worship you wholeheartedly. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a couple of things that I uh, periodically talk about on Wednesday nights. You know this. because, And we talk about them from time to time because they're so important to the Christian life. And because in my uh, observation, they're often overlooked. We sort of assume we all know what we're talking about. And those are prayer and worship. And you cannot live the effective Christian life without prayer because we need God's power. We need God's grace every day just to survive, frankly. And then those overwhelming tsunamis of of grief or overwhelming tsunamis of circumstances. I think of uh, the church we're going to pray for tonight um, in, in Maui. They lost their church building. Their pastor lost his home. The associate pastor lost his home. This last Sunday, I understand they met in a coffee shop. I mean, just, I can't even imagine having your church building burned down in a, in a wildfire. When those times come, we also need God's grace to respond, not with, oh, I don't know what we're going to do, I give up. Uh, not to respond with, let's call the insurance company and make sure they rebuild this building. By the way, I, I, those are appropriate response to call the insurance company. But still trusting God and not being defeated by our circumstances. So, Prayer is very important, but worship is also very important. Notice what verse 23 says in John 4, and I noticed this recently again when Matt shared these two verses with us. The Father seeketh such to worship him. God the Father is looking for worshipers. Now, I don't mean by that that he is somehow impaired when we do not worship him. Remember, God is independent of his creation. There's nothing we can do to make God better or stronger or wiser or that's not the point 
I cannot tell you the reason that God's seeking worshipers, but I know this verse says that he's looking for people to worship him. So worship also is very important to the Christian life. I grew up in the in, in uh, uh, independent fundamental Baptist churches in the 70s and in the 80s. And so that 80s particularly into the 90s, we went through what we called the worship wars. Some of you remember that term, we talked about the worship wars. And uh, what were some of the things in general among not just Baptist churches, but churches in the United States, what were some of the things that changed significantly during the worship wars? Now, some of you are too young to remember this, so just listen up, see if you can catch some of these things. What are some of the things that changed dramatically between those of you who went to church regularly in the 70s and early 80s and then 2000s in that 80s and 90s window? What are some of the major changes in churches and church meetings that went on during that time? Yes, Guillermo? Yeah, the music is the biggest single one. I mean, that's always the one I think about. Uh, When I was in high school, this would have been late 80s, uh, the whole argument about what kind of music is appropriate for worship was was raging. Uh, That argument seems to have been settled. I mean, as far as people don't argue about it anymore. I'm not saying they're right. I'm just saying it's settled. What are some of the other things that changed dramatically during that time? Yes, Franklin. Yeah, it does seem like it used to be churches were typically were... Local, you have maybe a hundred, couple hundred people at a church, and and in the last 10, 15 years, it seems like all these mega churches literally, they'll say their memberships ten thousand, their memberships fifteen thousand, their memberships twenty thousand, have sprung up. Yeah, that's good. Yes, David. Yeah, there have been a lot of scandals. Yeah, I don't think that had anything to do with the worship wars, but yeah, there have been a lot of scandals. Yeah. Yes, AJ? Style of teaching. Preaching. Can I use that word? Thank you. Style of preaching, he said. Um, Yeah, I think uh, the style of preaching, and a lot of that, uh, by the way, do not go to YouTube to find good preaching, okay? I think you're just going to waste a lot of time watching a lot of crazy stuff. But every once in a while, someone will send me a link, hey, you got to watch this preacher on YouTube. And a lot of times what I've noticed is there's no use of the Bible, the fellow who's preaching, you know, usually pacing back and forth, and I, I, I pace too, so I'm not saying the pacing is wrong, but he's pacing back and forth. He has nothing in his hands. There's no pulpit. So maybe he's memorized the scriptures. I, I'm not saying he has it, but it just seems like there's just no reference to open your Bibles. This verse says it's just sort of more of a, I, I like to say it's a TED Talk, religious TED Talk. You know, that, 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 that's become very prevalent today in churches in general. Kurt? Back, back then it was a lot more formal, and now it's right. more, uh, casual. Right, right. Just the way we dress when we come to church. Yeah, that, that's true. What else has changed? Okay. Yes, uh, remind me of your name again. Andrew. Andrew, Andrew. Um, I don't know if this is exactly right, but I would say uh, non-denominational churches. Yeah, a lot of churches have, let's say, taken the label off, haven't they? Yeah. Right. It used to be the Pres- First Presbyterian Church and, uh, you know, River Baptist Church or whatever, and, and now we see just crossroads. In fact, they don't even say church sometimes, right? Just crossroads. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that's excellent observation, yeah. And why, by the way, why, well, let me get to why in a second. One more, and then we'll get to why. Someone else had a hand up already. Yes, Gail? Well, she has one, go ahead. Oh, yes, Nan, please. Um, the elimination of the evening service. And Fewer meetings, right. Always, we had Sunday school, we had Sunday morning, we had Sunday night. 
and a prayer meeting in the middle of the week, sometimes Wednesday, sometimes Thursday night. Um, very few churches have that many meetings anymore. David? Yeah, they have. Right. Right. And also the style of building in which we worship. Uh, you know, used to have pews. Now it's not that pews are right or wrong. I'm just saying you said pews, and you'd have a platform with a, with a pulpit. And now many of the buildings that are built look more like a theater. Right? And you have this idea that there's some performance going on. The place where the congregation is is typically dark. The place where the, um, uh, uh, the, the music and the preaching is, is is well lit like a stage. I turned that off, didn't I, Caleb? I am so sorry. All right. Um, is well lit, and, and it just it brings emphasis to what's going on up here and de-emphasizes what's going on out there. Now, let's talk about why those changes were made. And I know I, some of this is gonna be speculative and just bear with me, we're going somewhere with this. So why would you have changed the music? Those of you who maybe went through some of those culture war, well, culture, war, uh, worship wars, um, what was the main arguments for significantly changing the music in our churches? Yes, Franklin. Contemporary, yeah. You have traditional versus contemporary, yes. But when, when someone who was saying, let's set aside the traditional music and let's use more contemporary music, what reasons would they give for that? Uh, Guillermo? Well, one of them is actually reminds me of my friend up in Oregon. Uh-oh. One of the things he said is, and it's completely to the other end, but anyway, to, to be more, to attract people that, you know. Yes. Right, right. Uh, here's the word that we're going to hear a lot. Uh, if you have these discussions with people, they call it seeker-sensitive, right? The, the idea is come, okay, to, the, to people who are outside the church. Come to our church, see our church, and you'll like our church. Now, you're going to hear a lot of that. We're going to get to uh, the biblical answer to that here in a second. But come to our church, come and see it, and then you're going to like it, right? You're going to like the music, Right? In fact, I was made aware of a church, not here in our area, but a church here in the United States, that uh, they actually, the, the music team, the worship band, plays secular hit music as people come in so that the folks who are unused to church feel like, oh, yeah, I know that song. I, I, yeah, And, and that, that's what they do. And then, of course, they transition to um, Christ, Christian music for the worship service, but they start out that way. Uh, good. Let's music. We want, it, we want people to come. We want them to feel comfortable. Why did they change the preaching? Why did we get away from using the Bible? Uh, David mentioned preaching against sin, um, preaching against heresy. He mentioned the Jehovah Witnesses and some churches that are even uncomfortable calling people heretics. Why did they do that? Franklin's been answering everything. Someone besides Franklin. Nirma. Yeah, we don't want to offend, right? We, someone might come in. Uh, if we preach against their particular sin, they might just leave. So we don't want to offend people. We want people to come and feel comfortable even if they're sinning, right? Let's be frank. Even if they're holding some heretical doctrine, we wouldn't want to offend them. Yes, uh, David? Oh, of course. 
Oh, amen. Churches all over this area who preach the Bible. Yes, you're right, David. Yeah, please, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying every single church in the United States has done this. I'm not even seeing every single church in Vacaville has done this. I'm just, I'm going somewhere with this, okay? You, when, when I get there, you'll understand why I've led you down this path, okay? Um, so the preaching. How about the, uh, the um, uh, uh, how the sanctuaries were constructed? Why, why would they change how the sanctuaries were constructed? Any idea? Yes, AJ. Sure, yeah, entertainment format, that's great. If you want to argue with AJ about that, you see AJ, start with him and then come to me because I agree with him. The idea is we, we want to focus on the people on the platform, whether it's the worship team or the preacher, and we want to de-emphasize the congregation. Now, turning your Bibles to John chapter 16, and here's why I'm helping you think through this, because in all these cases, we want people to come and see the church uh, by the way, I disagree with that statement theologically, but uh, they're saying we want people to come and see the church and feel comfortable so they'll just keep coming. That's the whole idea behind seeker-sensitive churches. Now, John chapter 16, let's pick it up in verse 18. Verses you know well, they say this. That's the come and see approach, okay? Come and see says we want people to come, see our church, feel comfortable with our church and state. John chapter six, six, 16, yes, verse 18. Nope. Sorry, John chapter 15, verse 18. I'll get this. John 15, verse 18, Jesus says to his disciples, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. So any church... (coughs) Excuse me. Any church in which unsaved, sinful people feel comfortable long term is problematic. Because any church that preaches truth, as David said, is going to eventually touch on somebody's sin. Any church that worships God, uh, and we're going to talk about what it means to worship, any church that worships God, the person who doesn't know God is not going to come in and feel comfortable. Have you ever been to a birthday party for someone you did not know? Yeah, on occasion I have too. Somebody says, hey, you know, your daughter knows. So you show up at this house. You don't know the person. It's really hard to participate fully in the birthday when you don't even know the birthday person. Because you don't know them. They don't know you. And yeah, you sort of hang back in the corner and you smile. And you, of course you bring a gift, right? It's a birthday party. And I always eat the cake and the ice cream. But you just don't feel like you can participate fully. Because you don't know the person. And let's be frank, if an unsaved person comes to our church and they're going to tell you this afterwards, they're going to say, hey, you know, you, your people are really nice, but I, I just, what, what were you doing? Don't be surprised if they don't know God. Now, if a Christian from another state happens to be traveling through and comes on their vacation, and they don't feel like they can worship with us. Yeah, that would be a problem. I understand that. But I'm talking about your unsaved neighbor comes to our church service. Maybe while Matt Galvin is here, you invite him. They come on out. They say, you sing the strangest songs. Well, yeah. I mean, why wouldn't we sing songs that they're unfamiliar with if they're not even saved? Excuse me while I take a drink. So if the come and see approach, the seeker-sensitive approach to worship is flawed, 
because it requires churches to change so that they are more like people who are unsaved, more like the world. It requires that in order for them to feel comfortable. Then what is the approach that God calls us to when it comes to reaching the world? Nan? Yeah, good. I, love, I like that, but let's see if we can find a verb that the Bible uses for our approach. It's not come and see. What? Okay. Get not, not trained actually doesn't show up in the... Well, actually, trained does show up, yes. But Franklin? Go. That's the word I'm looking for. Go. Go. Let's look right here in John chapter 15 and verse 16. Jesus says to his disciples, Ye have not chosen me. This is John 15, 16. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit. We're going to have to, because we are not a a seeker-sensitive church, we're going to have to go out with the gospel. And I like what Nan said, personally give people truth, whether it's verbally, with my words. I hand them a track. Obviously, it ought to line up with the way that I live. We have to go out. Now, true story, there was a fellow in uh, Mongolia. Uh, He came as a missionary, and uh, he worked hard. He did. He learned the language. And uh, he said, I'm getting ready to start a church. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to put a sign outside my house. Come and join us for church. He gave his church a name. I said, okay. I was really curious. So after first Sunday, I said to him, how many people came? He said, nobody. I said, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to put the sign out again next week. I don't know how long you put the sign out. Nobody ever came. Because Mongolians don't have a tradition of going to church. They see a sign, come to my church. It's like, okay. You know. Be like you seeing a sign, um, come eat my boards. You'd be like, yeah, that's neat cultural event, but I'm not interested in that culture. I said to him, finally, I actually had said it to him earlier, but I said it to him again a little more. He said, listen, you are never going to get people to come to your church. You've got to go get them. And that's true in the United States, too. If you say, well, pastor, you know what we need is we need more exciting services and then more people will come. We're not a come and see church. We're go and get them church. Now, I don't mean go and get them like, you know, we're going to hook them with a meat hook and drag them in here. We can't make anyone come, but we're going to take the gospel to them. Why? Because Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He did not say, build a big building, have exciting stuff go on so that people come. He said, go. Verse 8, John 15, verse 8. Look look at what that one says. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. John 15, 8. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. So when it comes to our time of worship as a church, our emphasis is not on having a program that people feel comfortable coming to. Our goal is to worship God. And if that means that heathen people feel uncomfortable, I I, I understand. Don't. I'm not being um, uh, nasty to them. I I get it that they don't feel comfortable. I've been places where I don't feel comfortable. uh, So I know how it's awkward, but I can't apologize for that because as Christians, 
we are called to worship God. So keep that in mind as we go through this uh, series on worship. A lot of what people are calling worship, and AJ used the word entertainment, it's a good word. A lot of what American Christians call worship is, is simply entertainment. And we do, Americans do entertainment really well. I mean, we do entertainment really well. Uh, that's why our, our, our movies go all over the world. When's the last time you watched a German film? Now, nothing against Germans, you're right, but Germans aren't known for their films. Now, they, they do make films, by the way. Uh, how many of you have ever seen a Mongolian uh, television series? Now, but the only people that are even close to this is Koreans. Korean television series go all over the world. But frankly, other than the Koreans... You know, when's the last time you watched Vietnamese television dubbed into English? You just don't see it. But I tell you what, if you go to Vietnam, you're going to see American television, America, because we're really good at entertainment. But entertainment is the exact opposite of worship. And here's why. Because entertainment is always centered around what you like. Entertainment is always centered around what you like. Because they want you to pay for the entertainment. And you're not going to pay for something you don't like. Right? You're not going to watch something you don't like watching. I can't remember the last time I sat through anything for more than two or three minutes that I didn't want to watch. I have more valuable things to do than stare at a screen with pictures in front of my eyes that I find boring. We, I don't do this, but I do remember a time in my life where I do channel surfing. You know, you click it on channel, you'd watch for a few seconds. Now I don't want to click again. Uh, that's about whales. I don't want to watch whales, you know, click again. That's, that's golf. That, I don't even, I don't want to you know, click it. Right? And you're just going through channel surfing. You're looking for something that attracts your eyeballs. That's entertainment. What do you like? Worship is not about what I like. Worship is what is God like. Not what does God like. What is God like? What are his attributes? What are his characteristics? Because we want to exalt those. We want to lift those up. And so music, music worship and entertainment are, are like opposite ends of a spectrum. And if your focus is on what do people want so that they'll come and they'll stay, you're going to get something dramatically different than what all honors and exalts God. <clears throat> Now, I said all that as an introduction to this series because I want you to understand worship rarely will make you feel comfortable. R worship will rarely be one of those things you're like, oh boy, I came away so energized from that, unless <coughs> your focus is on God. And then it's like attending the birthday party of your best friend. And I, I know I keep going back to this birthday party illustration. It, it, it has its flaws. But you go, you celebrate your friend's birthday and you come away just so grateful that you could spend time with your friend and just give him a day, right? I get that sometimes worship does that for us. But worship is not something I come here to do. Worship is an attitude I bring to this place. When I come to this place, I'm not expecting you or the song leader or the piano player. I'm not expecting these people to bring worship to me. I'm coming to this place having on Saturday night... Sunday morning, prepared my heart for worship, so I'm bringing worship here. Now, it's true, you bring worship, I bring worship, we, we join together and corporately as a group, as a body, as a congregation, we worship the Lord. That's why if you turn down the lights on the congregation, what you're saying is, 
focus up here. The worship is up here. But the worship isn't up here. The worship is everywhere, right? In fact, numerically, the congregation is more important to worship than the song leader or the preacher or the piano player, the organ player. These are just people that assist us in, in, in worshiping corporately. Okay, so when it comes to worship, we want to know what is God like and, and how do we exalt him? So let's go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to take about 15 minutes tonight, about 15 minutes, excuse me, next Wednesday night. And we're going to mine Genesis 1-1 for some of God's attributes and what God is like so that when we come to him to worship him, when we come to him to praise him, we have an idea in our mind that is biblical, that's right about who God is. Worship is not something I have to do. Worship is a privilege that I get to do. And I, I want every uh, member of Elmira Baptist Church to see worship as a high calling and a precious privilege that I can participate every Sunday. And of course, I can participate on my own Monday through Saturday, and I do in my time with God. But I'll be frank, there's something different about gathering with all of you and singing God's praises in unison than when I do it by myself. Some of you have been to the uh, two-minute warning at uh, Faith Baptist Tabernacle in North Highlands. And isn't it amazing? Hundreds of men singing praises to the Lord. It's not that it... I don't know. It's Again, God is seeking worshipers. I, I'm not saying that the more men get together, the more ladies get together, it's somehow better worship. It's just different when we're worshiping with our brothers and sisters and when we're worshiping on our own. So worship is a privilege. It's a, it's a high calling, something that God says, here, I'm going to entrust you with this privilege. Let's not take it as something I have to do. It's something I get to do. So in Genesis chapter 1-1, and I picked this verse it starts the Bible, yes, but it's a well-known verse. We just don't stop and think often enough about what this verse tells us about God. You know the verse. You can probably quote it with me. If you can, let's say it together. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Heaven. Singular? Yeah, heaven. Heaven and the earth. What does this tell us about God? What are some of the characteristics of God we see right here in this verse? Yes, Franklin. By, by the way, I, I, I commend you, Franklin, for bravely raising your hand. Go ahead. He's powerful. He's powerful. Now, this verse doesn't tell us this, but Hebrews uh, 11.3 says that everything that is seen was created out of everything that is not seen by the word of his power. And this chapter tells us later that he speaks, let there be light, there's light. Let the dry land appear, dry land appears. So he's merely stating things and in a way that our human minds can't completely comprehend. They come into existence. That's power. You probably heard about the joke. Uh, it is a joke. Scientist comes to God and says, God, you know, we're, we're so smart now. We can create life. And God says, well, let me see you. And so the scientist goes over to get a test tube. And God says, no, 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 no. You, you make your own dirt. <laughs> right? We as human beings, we always start with something to create. <laughs> God is so powerful, he has nothing. And he speaks and something exists. That's how powerful a God we have. And I think it changes how we look at prayer. 
Prayer isn't a desperate attempt to, you know, find somebody with, to help us. God, God can help us. I mean, if God wanted to, to solve all my problems today, he could. So if he doesn't solve my problems, that means he's wiser and, and smarter than I am. There's something else he's trying to accomplish in my life. Um, I don't want to go down that rabbit trail. So God's powerful. Good. What else can we see about God from this verse, Marisa? Yeah. In the beginning, God. Does this verse tell us where God came from? What was God doing before in the beginning? Doesn't tell us. In the beginning, there he is. He's eternal. He doesn't have a beginning. Now that's really hard for us to consider because everything else we know has a beginning. Uh, when I was a boy, my great-grandmother used to come and visit us, and she was born in 1899. Now, my mom insists that she was born in 1899 in Oklahoma. I told my mom, I don't think so, Mom. Why do you think, I, I know my mom's smart, okay, but why do you think I disagree with my mother about my grandmother, who is not Native American, being born in, in Oklahoma in 1899? Yes. Wasn't even a state. The only people who were supposed to be living in Oklahoma in 1899 were Native Americans. Who remembers when they opened it up for non-Native Americans to move into the state? Yes. Yeah. No, no, no. Yes. Okay. You're right. You're right. When did it become a state? You're right. 1893. Yeah. 1907 became a state. I mean, this, my grandmother, my great grandmother was born in Oklahoma. If she was born in Oklahoma, I think it was Texas. But anyway, born in Oklahoma before it even became a state. But as old as that seems to me, that's just recent history. We went to Israel, my wife and I, the, somebody paid our way to Israel in, in uh, 2010, and I remember we were walking through this area near uh, Biblical Dan, northern part of Israel. And our guide pointed out a structure, he said, um, archaeologists tell us that that's almost 4,000 years old. Now that, that's old, 4,000 years. Four, four, that would have been about the time of Abraham, I think. That's old. But that building did have a beginning. There was a time when that building wasn't there. Everything we can see has a beginning. They tell us that the sequoias are literally thousands of years old. And I have no doubt that they're thousands of years old. But those had a beginning. God has no beginning. We can't go back in time and to a point, okay, that, okay, there was no God. Okay, now there's a God. We can't do that. He's, that's why we use the word eternal. He has no beginning. That's really hard to comprehend. Okay, good. So God's powerful. God's eternal. Right here from this verse, what else can we see? Yes. Yeah, he's also everywhere. I, I, in the beginning, <coughs> there's God. He's, he is. He's this, he's not bounded by anything. He's not in a place, he just is. So yeah, I can see that. He's, omnis he's omnipresent, we say. He's everywhere. What else do we see about God from this verse? Yes. And by the way, don't think just in terms of his attributes, just layman's terms. What else do we see? Yes. Yeah, what does that mean? Right. He's above. He, he isn't tied to any one thing in his creation, like you and I are, right? We are literally on this earth, and if you take us off this earth and put us on any other planet in our solar system, we would die. I mean, you say, well, you could put a spacesuit on. Yeah, I get that, but I'm just talking about 
we, we're bound to this earth. We, we can't go anywhere else. We need to, to breathe. We need the water. We need the climate that's right here. God is transcendent. He's above all that. He isn't just the God of the United States. He's not just the God of Israel, the God of Judah. You remember when um, Sennacherib, Sennacherib came to Jerusalem. Uh, well, before he came to Jerusalem, he sent his messengers on ahead. And his messengers said to King Hezekiah's messengers, there was an embassy there, said, hey, listen, don't, don't let Hezekiah fool you saying that your God is going to protect Jerusalem from our King Sennacherib. He, he's already conquered the, all these cities. And where are these gods of these cities that, that, that uh, Sennacherib con- conquered? Obviously, that what they're saying is the gods that Sennacherib had with him are more powerful than any of these other gods. But he forgot that all the gods that they were discussing, Sennacherib's gods, these gods of these cities that he had conquered, all those gods are false gods. They're just idols. We're not talking about a god of just Jerusalem. We're talking about the god of the whole earth. Right? So he's transcendent. Good. I like that word, transcendent. By the way, part of our, our worship is trying to, we can't as human beings, but trying to be transcendent, to get beyond just the dailiness of our living and recognize that there is someone bigger than us. There's someone that's beyond our problems. Um, so many times people come to me with a problem, and it's a real problem, and I don't know what to do. We never come to God and God says, boy, that's a tough one. I'll have to think about that, right? We never come to God and he says, boy, yeah, that problem, that's one that I just don't know. No, our God's beyond that. So he's transcendent. Good. That's a good word. I like that. What else about God do we see in this verse? Guillermo. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't have to. In fact, if we didn't have Genesis chapter 1, well, he, he recounts some of the aspects of creation in Psalms and other places. But let's imagine the Bible were stripped of all its references to creation. We wouldn't know where we came from. Scientists can tell us so much about what we see today and where it may have come from in the past, but we have no idea. Um, that's good. I like So we have a God. Can we use this term? We have a God who communicates with us. We have a God who communicates with us. God delights to communicate with us. Now, I don't have a verse for that. I should have written that down. Um, this verse, though, indicates the fact that this verse exists and has been given to us indicates God wants us to know. Now, God doesn't want us to know everything. But there are things God wants us to know. He's a God who communicates. So sometimes I know people will feel like God's just absent. You know, he's just out there somewhere, but he's so transcendent. Um, God is also what we say imminent, not imminent, like just about to happen, but imminent as in he's also very close to us. He's very close to us. He, he wants to communicate with us. Okay, good. I've got uh, one, two more that I want to get to, but we can get to it next week. Let me give you one tonight. God is creative. God is creative. Now, I don't know about you. I, I like beautiful things, but it never occurs to me to put things in a particular order to make them beautiful. So, for example, I'll go into somebody's home, and they'll have some 
<clears throat> artfully arranged decorations on their shelves. And I'll think, oh, that, that, that looks really good. Buddha would never have occurred to me to do it that way. I just, that's not me. Last year, <clears throat> Patty did a great job preparing the decorations for Thanksgiving banquet. She had some ideas. She had these ladies make cornucopias out of uh, something. And we stuffed literal fruit in them. And then people could eat the fruit out of the cornucopias. Great idea. I never would have thought of it. Never in a million years. Because I'm not very creative. But here's how creative God is. There is nothing. And God comes up with all this stuff. I mean, God comes up with trees. But how many different kinds of trees are there? Just to the biggest division is between what we call deciduous trees that lose their leaves and evergreen trees. I, I taught biology for a while. Even among the deciduous trees, there's monocots and dicots. And then among the evergreen trees, you've got fir trees and, and uh, um, um, <laughs> no, pine trees and all these different varieties. God is a creative God. He thought all of this up when there was nothing. He didn't look at someone, oh, that's good. I'm going to, yeah, I want to do just like that. No, no, he didn't do that at all. There was nothing. <clears throat> he had to come up with color. We we're talking about the fact that women see, typically women see more color than men do. And uh, I'll look at something and say, that's green. And my wife will say, no, it's, you know, aqua. And I'm like, okay, that, that's fine. Or that's teal. And I'll say, okay, great, teal's great. Uh, that's blue. Well, no, that's not blue. It's, you know. Azure. And I'm like, okay, great. I'm happy. God came up with all those colors. God came up with this idea that there would be an electromagnetic spectrum. And as it hit the back of our eyes, the rods and cones, uh, I forget which translates the colors that we see, but the rods and cones are going to send electrical signals to our brain so that we can see colors. God did all that with nothing. It wasn't like he said, oh, that's a beautiful color palette. I want to recreate that. No, he created the color palette. God created tastes. I love tasting, well, some new food. Some new food I don't want to taste again. But I love the variety of tastes that are in the world. <clears throat> when God started, started, there was no tastes. There were no spices. There wasn't salt. There wasn't pepper. And, you know, when God got creative and added on to it, no, there was nothing God created the tongue so that it could receive taste. So here's my point. When we say God created, we mean from nothing. He had no other example to look at. He wasn't drawing from what he saw when he was growing up as a child because he'd never been a child. I get that. He's creating out of scratch. We have a God who's creative. We haven't even finished with Genesis 1.1. We're going to finish next week with Genesis 1.1. But when we come to worship on Sunday, keep in mind what kind of God we're worshiping. He's just not, he's not ordinary. He's not just God. We, we, I think sometimes because that word uh, gets thrown about in our language, we can be very um, um, careless with it. Just, yeah, God, I'm here to worship God. Yeah, who is God? Who is this being that you've come to worship. And when we're inspired by that, it, it enables us, motivates us to worship with more fervor and more wholeheartedly.